What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Fed Chair Jay Powell testifying in front of the House Financial Services Committee continues right now. Among his comments, he says speed was important early in the cycle, but it is less important now in terms of rate hikes. He did say rates may still move higher, but at a more moderate pace. Dow's down 30 points. The session low was 178, a decline of. S&P 500 is down 19, 43.69 today, a half percent. And the Nasdaq is the worst performer as it sheds more than 1%. Let's get straight to CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Lee. Steve, for all of the biggest takeaways from day one. Hey, Kelly, thanks. Just a few moments ago, Fed Chair Jay Powell pretty explicitly endorsed the outlook for two more rate hikes, noting that a majority of Fed officials have forecast two hikes and saying that's a pretty good guess of what's going to happen if the economy performs as expected. But he emphasized that the Fed is in no hurry to hike rates as it was when it was hiking 75 basis points and several consecutive moves. The level to which we raise rates is actually a separate question of the speed with which we move. Earlier in the process, speed was very important. It's not very important now. We were at 75 basis points for several meetings, then we were at 50 basis points, then 50 basis points, 25 basis points at at three consecutive meetings, and now we're monitoring that that pace. Powell had said in his opening remarks that inflation has moderated somewhat, but still, quote, has a long way to go to get to the Fed's 2 percent target on the economy. He said it slowed significantly since last year, but was now expanding at a modest pace. Consumer spending had picked up. Housing was weak. Higher rates and slower output growth were slowing business investment, but the labor market remains very tight in the futures market. The upshot of all this was little change to the 75 percent probability of a hike in July and less than a 20 percent probability. I'm just going to double check that. Uh, Kelly, in case it's moved since, not really has a 20% probability beyond that of a second hike. So the market not necessarily taking Powell or the FOMC at their word on that second hike right now. Mm, that's a good place to pick up the debate. Steve, stay with us uh, for a couple of minutes if you would. My next guest says the Fed might need to keep hiking into 2024. Joining me now is Larry Lindsay. He is president and CEO of the Lindsay Group. He was also director of the National Economic Council under President George W. Bush. Larry, it's good to see you and check in on, on your kind of outlook. As Steve just mentioned, the market is not quite up to where Powell is, or it sounds like it, it, close to where you are. Well, I, I, I'm not surprised. The market uh, hasn't been there for a long time. They've been quite skeptical about the Fed's uh, rate hiking cycle. Uh, I thought the uh, the chair did a, a very good job today, uh, much better than he did at his presser at uh, conveying where the Fed was going. Uh, the reasons he gave for the necessity to hike further is, is quite clear. Uh, it includes the labor market. The economy remains quite strong. Uh, core inflation is moderating, but only if you put a telescope on it. So, you know, the Fed is going to have to move. So when so I'm also curious, Larry, because you always have such a good grasp on international uh, people have pointed out the asynchronous nature of this. Steve and I have talked about it within the U.S., but even internationally, we've had Europe hiking, China cutting and us holding steady. (laughs) Well, uh, there are three different economies and 
And one of the great things about having different currencies and uh, different uh, monetary regimes is that each one can tailor uh, its uh, behavior uh, to the needs of its own economy. So I guess my question on that is, is it actually a benefit uh, that we have, for instance, China, it sounds like exporting deflation right now uh, at a time when otherwise we could say it, we know obviously Europe is not is no help on that front, but perhaps they face some idiosyncratic issues over their food and otherwise. Yeah, well, the Chinese have one huge idiosyncratic issue. It's called communism. And I know that's not in vogue. But if you look at their behavior, um, what Xi has done is a major power grab that has stood in the way of the efficiency of its economy. Uh, I think they're beginning to realize that. Uh, they returned uh, Jack Ma's associates, uh, for example, to uh, Alibaba just recently. You might remember they, they sort of uh, canned him. They didn't push him off the top of the building like they did with some other tech execs. They just sort of disappeared him for a couple of years. Um, you know, is took about half of the asset value of Alibaba. Uh, and now they realize they're not going to be able to do such a good job at it. So they put him back in. The, their handling of COVID was a major, major problem. I mean, we know how disastrous lockdowns were for the U.S. population, especially for school children, with regard to psychology, with regard to education and everything else. Uh, the same thing is very much true in, in China. They had more severe lockdowns. Uh, they're not good at handling uh, uh, psychological issues, and they've got a lot of depression, much like we do as a result. The other uh, piece of this is their propaganda exercise is to blame it all on the United States. Well, they've convinced the Chinese population we're trying to hold China down. Well, that's not exactly something that's going to create exuberance for the uh, Chinese population. And that's one reason I think that sentiment is so weak. So, Steve, let me turn to you and bring it back to this question of what the U.S. does with rate hikes. And Powell himself made a couple of interesting comments right. where he said uh, we're not necessarily any better than private <clears throat> economic forecasters and foreseeing the future and talked a little bit about, you know, what the pace would need to be now, a little bit about inflation and so forth. Um, why do you think the market, which had to be yanked up to where the Fed was uh, many a times in recent months, is not right uh, up to the level where Powell thinks they ought to be right now? You know, uh, maybe I learned this years ago from Larry Lindsay, and I think the answer might be because it hasn't hurt them or paid for them to be wrong about this. It is kind of interesting um, <laughs> that if you've had the Fed wrong over this time, I don't think it cost you very much. I don't know that you could have made a whole lot more money, maybe in the Fed funds futures market, maybe a bit in the bond market. But I'm not sure that you would have really uh, uh, had it, you'd, you would have had it wrong in the stock market for sure. Um, if you would have that sort of bet that the Fed was going to hike to where Larry says they're going to hike. And, and, and then uh, if you would have been long in the stock market, you would have still made money at this point. Maybe not as far as Larry thinks they need to go. Um, I think the other aspect of this is um, the market has had a different outlook on inflation than the Fed has had. One that comes down more quickly. And I know there are people, uh, I guess you're going to introduce Rick next, and he's going to He's had this idea that the Fed is not hiking anymore, and I respect that opinion. I don't know that I agree with it. But, but Kelly, I'd be wrong. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the idea of um, Powell being asked about the Grateful Dead and going to the Dead concert during the, uh, during the hearing and uh, him saying that it was 
Uh, he's been a dead fan for 50 years, had a terrific time at the concert. But the important thing was that there was bipartisan agreement on the Grateful Dead among both a Republican and a Democratic congressman on that issue. So I don't think we want to miss this moment to emphasize and underscore and highlight bipartisanship, even if it's about the Grateful Dead when it comes to uh, Congress. I think it's a generational thing, Steve. Yeah. Gentlemen, if you could pause for well, a some moment. Young, some young congressmen there. Let me bring in oh. Rick Santelli, as mentioned. We just had a 20-year note up for auction, and given the backdrop, it actually went quite strongly. Uh, Rick, what can you tell us? Uh, it was a terrific auction. As a matter of fact, we started these 20-year auctions back in May of 2020. I remember doing the first one quite well when they came back in vogue. They got rid of them about 20 years ago. But this auction had the highest bid to cover of any of the auctions thus far since May of 2020 at 2.87. I gave this an A+. plus. It was 12 billion 20-year bonds and the yield 4.01, which is like two basis points below where the one issued was trading near 4.03. Lower yield, higher price. The government's selling it for us. Higher price is a good thing. A solid auction. Every metric was off the charts. And as far as Powell goes, well, if you look at two-day of twos, you look at a two-day of tens, really didn't have a very big effect if you look at today's range versus yesterday's. But where it did have a big effect was the dollar index. If you look at that intraday of the dollar index, pretty much the minute he turned the microphone on, the dollar index went down. I can't think of anything easier to understand with regard to what the market thinks about the Fed and future Fed policy than that dollar chart. Kelly, back to but you. But Rick, my, my esteemed gentleman here seemed to disagree with you and to, to say the market is wrong in that reaction. Uh, Larry, I'll just let you kind of respond. Well, I, um, I hesitate very much uh, to disagree with, with, with Rick, who knows uh, markets better than, than just about anyone I know. However, um, in the end, the Fed cannot give up on the 2% target. It would lose all credibility if it did. The amount of progress they're making is quite low. I know the market doesn't want to have uh, rates hikes. The Fed almost always goes further than necessary, quote, necessary, because they don't know what necessary is. So I think they're going to have to continue to hike until they cause the pain that Steve was alluding to, until the markets say, ouch, the Fed has probably not done its job. And Steve, I'll give you a quick last comment on that. Um. I think that's right. I, I, I actually have a question for Larry, if you don't mm -hmm. mind, sure. uh, Kelly. I know this upsets the timing here, but Larry, um, the intro to the section was you think we need to hike in the 2024. How high do you think the Fed has to go to hit that rate? And do you think it matters? Do you agree or disagree with the chairman on this idea of the speed with which it gets there doesn't matter as much anymore as it did before? I, I agree uh, with uh, the chair very much. Um, and that's one reason why I think they're going to be going into 2024. Uh, if you look at things like uh, the Taylor rule, what have you, uh, you end right. up with something like a six handle on what it has to be. And, and I think they'll have two more hikes this year. And that'll mean we're going to need some hikes in 2024. Put a coda on that, Steve. Yeah, I, I don't know that the market has incorporated or digested uh, six. I think six is different. And I also know I also wonder if the market has internalized the pain that we're talking about here. As you know, Kelly, the story I did yesterday on this show was the idea that there's sort of a soft landing built in, this idea of 
GDP going flatline, but not necessarily going negative. Um, there's a big difference between zero and negative when it comes to GDP and the kind of impact it has on individual people's lives and on corporate earnings. Larry? The market hasn't internalized anything. Uh, they don't want to internalize. They're being a 15-year-old right now. And um, if you want 15-year-olds to, uh, to behave, you know what you got to do. I don't know yet. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to have your hands full of that. I know. No question. Wait, you'll have to write a book about how to handle It's too, you know, it's, it, I, I, I couldn't even read it. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both. It's a pleasure. Larry Lindsay and Steve Leisman on these markets. Home builders have been rocketing and mortgage rates have been back below 7%, but mortgage demand more broadly still remains subdued. Let's get to Diana Olick with the latest figures. Hi, Diana. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, most mortgage rates fell for the third straight week last week, but demand for mortgages pretty flat. The average rate for 30-year fixed rate mortgages with conforming loan balances decreased to 6.73% from 6.77, and that's for loans with 20 percent down. Interesting, though, the rate for jumbo loans rose to 6.8 percent, and that was the second straight week that it was higher than for conforming loans, and that hasn't happened in about two years. It's because tighter liquidity conditions have caused jumbo lenders to pull back, and that in turn increases rates. Now, applications to refinance a home loan dropped 2 percent for the week. They were 40 percent lower than the same week one year ago. Mortgage applications to purchase a home increased 2% for the week, but they were still 32% lower than a year ago. FHA demand, though, actually drove the increase for purchases. FHA is favored generally by lower-income borrowers or first-time buyers, so it's at least a sign that they're trying to stay in the game despite rough affordability. In contrast, demand for newly built homes much stronger. Applications for mortgages to buy new homes jumped sharply in May, up 17% year-over-year, and that's why the builders are doing so well. The stocks are hitting 52-week highs. Housing starts saw a huge jump, and we saw builders like Lenore with big earnings beats last week, and we will get KB Homes report after the bell today. Kelly? So I think it's just an important context that even as we've seen the home builders so strong, housing activity, broadly speaking, is anemic. You know what's funny, Diana? I, was, I almost asked Larry and Steve about this, but if the Fed wanted to take the heat out of this part of the housing market, they should cut rates. I mean, that's what's going to free, kind of actually free things up, increase inventory, lower prices, and, and so on. Well, by cutting rates, you mean because the builders would be able to build more for lower prices, lower their costs of doing things? Because no, the issue people, isn't. People would put their homes on the market, right? They're uh, frozen yeah. into place. But remember, mortgage rates do not follow strictly what the Fed is doing. It ta- it, they mm-hmm. follow what the Fed thinks about the broader economy. And it also has a lot to do with MBS, which are mortgage backed bonds and the Fed pulling out of that. So it's not a direct correlation as to what the Fed does. The biggest issue in the market today is, as you said, inventory. And potentially, you know, if mortgage rates were lower, people could put their homes on the market. But remember, most people have mortgage rates under 4%, most under 3% even. So even if rates pulled back to 5 or 45 it's not going to get a lot of people wanting to trade up to that and sell their homes. All right, Diana, thank you. Our Diana Olick reporting. Coming up, Tesla dropping today, but its epic run over the past month has added nearly $300 billion back to the company's market cap. Still, Barclays says it's time to move to the sidelines for now. The analyst joins us next to explain. Plus, the S&P's 14% gain this year has been powered by the so-called Magnificent Seven. But our guest says it's time to take the other side of that bet 
and go smaller. The names he says are set to outperform in the next leg of the rally. And as we go to break, here's a broader look at the markets. The Dow is the outperformer, down only a tenth of a percent today. The S&P is down a half percent. The Nasdaq more than one percent. And the 10-year yield back up to around 375. We're back after this. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1-Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tesla has been on a hot streak lately, more than doubling since Jan 1. And one analyst says it's time to hit the brakes. Barclays' Dan Levy downgraded shares to equal weight today, saying the recent rally is too sharp relative to challenging near-term fundamentals. He's a little concerned about profit margins, demand elasticity, but he still raised his price target by 30 bucks and sees long-term opportunity. Joining me now is Dan Levy, senior autos analyst at Barclays. It's good to see you, Dan. Welcome. Great. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So let's start. These are always tricky when it's, you know, near-term challenges, but you raise a price target, long-term opportunity. How do you thread the needle on this one? Yeah, listen, um, we've been bullish on Tesla. We see them as a long-term winner in the uh, industry's transition to an EV world. Uh, we acknowledge that uh, there's more to Tesla than just the automotive story. And even from a more, call it, mid-term catalyst path, you have Model 2, the push to mass scale coming late 2024. But I think the view on the stock was that there is still a, a more challenging near-term fundamental setup as far as finding the floor and margins. Inventories for Model 3 are still somewhat elevated. There is still some concern that you're going to have further price cuts. And with the run in the stock, we thought that the stock was dismissing some of those fundamentals, hence the move to the sidelines. Is there a glut of Teslas right now? Uh, there is certainly, you know, based on some of the, the, the data that we've seen, there is elevated inventory, especially for Model 3. I think the concern is that you have on top of this capacity ramping at some of their other facilities, uh, Austin and Berlin, and that as more of this capacity comes online and you've seen competition from other automakers, this could spur further discounts and price cuts from Tesla. Right, exactly. So the shares are down 5% today. Do you think they can hang on to the doubling that they've seen year to date? Uh, you know, our, our view on the stock going forward is we, we fully recognize that there are other non-automotive components to the story. We appreciate that the stock is getting a bit of an AI bid and, uh, you know, the opportunity near term is that um, you may potentially see a, a bottoming of, of margins on the second quarter. We think that uh, as far as deliveries go, you're going to get the deliveries release in the next week and a half. We're actually somewhat ahead of consensus on that. 
But again, I think that you know it's my it's important to be mindful of the fundamental setup, especially as it relates to margins. Yeah, and what about the valuation? Seventy-five times forward earnings or, or something like that. You're raising your price target to two sixty uh, above levels from here. What are you valuing uh, the shares on? Yeah, well, the, our valuation is based on our long-term twenty thirty outlook. Um, you know, we think that by then Tesla can be you know, comfortably, comfortably north of 6 million units. That makes them the number, call it five or six automaker globally. We have them holding some margins. And then what we're trying to do is embed some upside optionality in there. So we feel that the valuation is mindful of, you know, the path that they're going toward with some upside optionality as well, which we think is quite necessary. But at the same time, uh, if you look at the trading multiple, this was a stock that was trading at just under you know, 30 times EBD EBITDA uh, as recently as late April. A lot of the feedback we got was that the 1Q earnings call, call was quite negative. And in the span of the last six, seven weeks, it's gone to well over 40 times EBITDA, really off of uh, you know, sentiment with little in the way of change fundamentals. This is actually a sharp contrast to some of the other AI names we've seen like NVIDIA, where you've actually seen uh, multiple uh, re-rating alongside positive earnings revisions. Right, exactly. And that's a great point. Um, you mentioned that AI has been, to some extent, a driver of the stock, but there seems to be a lot more risk around Tesla's use of it, specifically its full self-driving capabilities, where it seems like marketplace demand is not that strong right now, based on some of the prices of used Teslas that come uh, with that equipment, where they're really not getting much of a valuation boost from it. Uh, the consumer may not be valued, and more importantly, regulators may clamp down. Um, they actually have pretty had a pretty hands-off approach so far, but as we've seen with crypto, that might not last forever. Yeah, the, the approach on, on FSD is actually quite different from what we've seen other automakers taking. Tesla takes uh, essentially a brain and eyes approach. There's a lot of cameras, and then there's a computer that's doing all this. So it's a very vision-based approach. Uh, other automakers are trying to use other sensors and then the push to full, completely full self-driving You've seen other automakers using other sensors such as LiDAR, embracing radar, and also using maps. So it's a very different approach. We've characterized the Tesla outcome as binary. It, it could be a, a spectacular success, but it's also not very clear that it could be successful, especially as it really is a contrast to the other automakers. Near term, you know, the uptake rates on FSD have been maybe somewhat more limited. It's more of a U.S. story. Um, and if you look at actually some of the third-party data uh, stacking up Tesla's system against others, you know, there are different reviews on where Tesla's system stands. They do have clearly an advantage. They have a lot of data out there. They have a large fleet of vehicles. But the technical approach, it's still unclear if they're the long-term winner on this. Yeah, although it sounds like that's not, you know, necessarily embedded in your, your long-term bullishness. There is a, a, some upside optionality, which we think is the right thing to do. But we're, you know, when we were overweight, it was more call on the automotive side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Where they've actually, you know, you can. One thing you can say is they've had incredible success uh, on the automotive side. Now, however many Teslas there might be available right now. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Great. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Dan Levy, Senior Autos Analyst at Barclays. Still ahead, Bank of America flow data shows retail investors growing more cautious on stocks. One of our next guests agrees, says he's seeing more opportunities in the bond market, and he's playing it through ETFs. We'll tell you what he's buying ahead. 
Plus, Amazon slightly lower right now. The FTC suing the company, but a less than 1% decline on that news. We'll have the details coming up. As we go to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map as United Health leads the way on a pretty split index. Uh, we also see a strong performance in the likes of Chevron, Procter & Gamble, Intel, Salesforce, Walgreens. Those are your decliners today. Disney as well. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on what's moving this hour. Dom Chu is all over it at the Telestrator. Hi, Dom. All right, so we got a down market overall. Three straight days worth of losses. That's what we're working on for the Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ, Kelly. But we are just off our session lows right now. The Dow Industrial is down about 31 points, just about flat ish down to 34,023. 43.68 is the level for the S&P 500, down about 20 points right now. At the highs of the session, we were still down eight points, but down 28 at the lows. So again, towards the lower end of things, but off the session, uh, uh, low marks so far, down about one half of 1%. The Nasdaq composite, 13,507, 160 points to the downside, the real underperformer there. One of the reasons why is because of Amazon. Those shares coming under pressure, again, they're down just about maybe three-quarters of 1% now. They were down more than 1% at one point when the headlines first came out that the Federal Trade Commission and regulators were suing Amazon, given some of the practices around its prime membership service. Those headlines now driving the downside there. One of the bigger drags for that technology trade. And then a couple interesting calls, tech-related, coming out of Wolf Research, one for Spotify and one for Peloton. They're moving at least to the downside here. Spotify was called a top pick for Internet subscription-based services over at Wolf Research, outperform rating there, upgraded. Peloton, meanwhile, down about 10% right now, Kelly. They got downgraded to an underperform at Wolf. Pricing power is an issue there. Some concerns about the long-term demand for at-home fitness equipment in the wake of the COVID pandemic. So keep an eye on some of those names generally to the red for the technology trade, but still, movers, nonetheless, I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, it tells you how vulnerable Peloton's been trading a 10% drop on that, Dom, thanks. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Rescuers still have not located the tourist submersible that vanished Sunday while exploring the wreckage of the Titanic. The search area now twice the size of Connecticut and will soon include a French ship that can dive to a depth of 13,000 feet. The Coast Guard says the search is focusing on an area where a Canadian aircraft detected underwater noises this morning. When you're in the middle of a search and rescue case, you always have hope. That's, that's why we're doing what we do. Um, with respect to the noises specifically, we, we don't know what they are. Prosecutors in Idaho saying the DNA found on a knife sheath at the off-campus home where four college students were killed last November directly links the accused murderer, Brian Koberger. The details of the alleged DNA match coming in newly filed court documents. And at least seven people critically injured after an explosion started a fire in central Paris today. Local officials say it's too early to tell the exact cause, but people reported the strong smell of gas in the area. Witnesses say the blast caused at least one building 
to fully collapse. Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. All right, Tyler, thanks. Coming up, the NASDAQ underperforming today. Shares of NVIDIA down about 3%. Meta, Alphabet, Microsoft all off about 2 And with valuations rising and bubble talk swirling around AI, is it time to hop off the mega cap train altogether? We'll discuss next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The S&P 500 is up 14% so far this year. But without seven of the biggest stocks in the market, you know the ones, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, Meta, well, the S&P would actually be flat over the past six months. So is the rally about to broaden out or fizzle out altogether? Let's ask Chris Crisanti, chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management, and Andres Garcia Amaya, the CEO of Zoe Financial. Welcome, gentlemen. Chris, I'll start with you. It sounds like you're fading big tech. Yeah, Kelly, it's good to be with you again. Um, I, I would say it's a better bet at this point to think that that small will outperform large. I'm not sure which way the market will go. It really feels like it has a lot of momentum and, and it could easily broaden. But even if it broadens, what you want to own is the stuff that's lagged at this point. Apple, this is a great statistic, Apple alone is now worth more than all the stocks in the Russell 2000 index put together. That's never happened before. Five years ago, it was worth only a third of the index. So that pendulum seems to be swinging just about as far as it, it's able to go. NVIDIA is up almost 200% this year, things like that. So I say, let's take the other side of that bet and find some smaller names. They don't have to be small cap, but smaller names, 30, 40, 60 billion that can outperform in the second half. One more just as a follow up before I kind of hone in on that is, are you concerned that if this, you know, magnificent seven reverses or, you know, collapses or something to that extent, um, is the whole rally fizzling out or do you feel comfortable that it can, you know, maybe broaden, keep going and just have different leadership and, and absorb that correction? I think it depends on, on the devil will be in the details, Kelly. I think if, if, you know, NVIDIA, Apple, Microsoft plunge, sure, the rally is over. But what I suspect is more likely to happen is, is they may tread some water, consolidate their gains, and let some other folks take over market leadership for a while. So, Andres, I'll turn to you, because I think if, if I recall correctly, you've been warning about this market for the last couple of months, even as we've watched um, these magnificent seven vault into kind of overstretched territory. So would you join, Chris, in, in picking through some of the smaller caps or are you moving to more to the sidelines altogether? I think you have to look um, at relative valuation to bonds and cash and ask yourself, where is that incremental dollar once the AI kind of enthusiasm filters through? You know, where is that incremental dollar going to go, right? And from that perspective, I think bonds and even cash uh, is where that incremental dollar is going to go. Especially when you look at those seven, stock like NVIDIA is trading more than 30 times sales, right? So once some of this kind of enthusiasm fizzles out, it reminds me a little bit of when Tesla was trading at those valuations and what happens next, right? So I do think there's going to be some consolidation. And, and in order to see broadening out of the stock market, you need to see earnings continue to deliver. And that's going to take a couple quarters to see through rather than, you know, than weeks. And you're more, are you looking more at fixed income? Because it's, you know, it's kind of a running joke. Everyone going, wow, I can get four or 5% in treasuries. And everyone's like, great, I got 80%, you know, on the mega caps. <laughs> totally. <clears throat> I mean, we said similar uh, things in um, 2020, right? And I think we're still trading on nostalgia of a bygone era of, 
hey, the Fed's going to lower interest rates to zero. Inflation is going back to one and two percent. I've been saying this a couple of times over, right? It takes a long time for market participants to adjust to a new regime. And I think we're just kind of trading on that nostalgia of, you know, just buy the flyers and close your eyes. <laughs> All right. So, Chris, before we go, I want to clarify, it's not like you're actually reaching for small caps here. We're talking about no. Dollar General, $36 billion ICE. Uh, why, why does that one jump out to you? You know, Kelly, I like ICE. It, it, it's, I'm still kind of afraid that we haven't seen the end of the banking issues. I think commercial real estate, this isn't, I'm not saying anything shocking here. Commercial real estate really has some some, some work to get through. Um, so I'd like a financial that's inexpensive, maybe has been caught up a little bit in the, the tar on the financials, but, but that doesn't take interest rate, that doesn't have bad loans. So ICE runs, as you know, commodity exchanges, primarily oil and interest rates. And, and they don't care whether the commodity goes up or down, they, they just care about the volume. It's a terrific business. It's selling well below its 21 lows. And th this is the kind of stock that has lagged the mega caps. It's a $60 billion market cap. So that's not a small company, although it's a 40th of the size of Apple. So you know, that's the place I would be looking now if I were investors. There, there's some in finance, there, there's some in retail, there, there's some all over the place, and they've just been left behind. And, and they're kind of interesting and cheap. The anti-mega caps. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you both. Chris Grisanti, Andres Garcia Amaya. We appreciate it. Coming up, Meta seeing outsized gains this year, up more than 130%. But Snap and Pinterest are barely in the green. Could an advertising slowdown be a stumbling block for all of these names? We'll head to Ken Lyon to find out next. And a quick programming note, don't miss the premiere of CNBC's documentary, China's Corporate Spy War. Eamon Javers dives deep into the shadowy world of espionage, telling the story of a spy from China who attempted to steal GE's jet engine secrets. China's Corporate Spy War premieres tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on CNBC. Welcome back. The world's biggest advertising convention is underway in Cannes, France. And the big question facing both agencies and media and tech companies is how to position for the expected contraction in ad spending. Julia Borston has some key details from executives there, including a TikTok exec. Hi, Julia. Hi, Kelly. That's right. All the big brands are here in Cannes trying to figure out the best place to put their ad dollars right now, especially in light of all of the economic uncertainty right now. And a lot of the conversation is centering on fast growing TikTok. We're here at their setup um, here in Cannes, just steps from the Quasette and the Palais. And I spoke to TikTok's global president of business solutions, Blake Chanley, here at the company's meeting place. He told me that the company is growing its revenue by a high double-digit percentage rate. Insider Intelligence estimates that the company will top $13 billion in ad revenue this year, though, of course, the company itself does not disclose any ad numbers. But getting that high double-digit percentage rate, that is news, Kelly. Now, I asked um, Chanley if the regulatory threat that the company is facing and the push by some to ban TikTok's operations here in the U.S. is having any impact on advertisers' interest here in Cannes. Here's how he answered. It's not this week. The feedback we're getting from advertisers is that they are, they're just, they just want to work with us. They want to figure out how they can have a presence in the platform, you know, how they can get this kind of corner of comedian culture. Um, and so that's really the, the folks of the conversations all week been really positive. 
Now here at Cannes, here at the company setup, TikTok is featuring some of its new tools that are enabling brands to have more control over their placement on TikTok, where their ads are originating, where they're showing up, and also more AI tools to help advertisers um, both design ads better and, of course, target their ads. And that's a real key focus of AI here, how it can be used to not only make the content better, but also make each of those ads more effective. The company is also really focused on rolling out more commerce solutions for both big brands and also creators. Take a listen. What we're trying to do with our commerce solutions are to allow the, the merchants to reach those consumers and allow them to take that, have that transaction, the purchase, all take place right within the user experience versus having to link out somewhere else. Um, we're early stages in the U.S. We've, we've launched in the U.K. We've got a, a robust business in Southeast Asia. Um, so it's, it's a big part of our future. We're excited about it. You know, Chanley said that overall it seems like the mood is very bullish here. Despite overall concerns about an economic contraction, there's a lot of interest in what TikTok is doing, particularly in its reach, especially with those harder to reach younger demographics that are maybe not spending as much time watching old-fashioned linear television. I asked him what he thought about competition, and Kelly said they're just focused on what they're doing and not as focused on the fact that there are a lot of other platforms right now also featuring their short-form video formats that look a lot like TikTok. Back over to you. I took note of that, Kevin. Speaking of TikTok, the former exec, Kevin Mayer's comment to you, Julia, that Coco Melon, as part of his new venture, doing quite well. Uh, no surprise here. Thank you for now. We appreciate it. Julia Borson reporting from Cannes. Meantime, shares of Amazon are lower, barely lower after uh, the FTC is suing the company over a deceptive subscription sign-up process for its core product, Amazon Prime. Steve Kovac here with the details. Yeah, not in Cannes, unfortunately. But look, uh, this is this is a really interesting lawsuit because it's alleging that uh, Amazon used a lot of deceptive practices basically to at the checkout process to hoodwink people into signing up for Prime, making it difficult to unsubscribe from Prime after that happened. They, in fact, in this uh, lawsuit, they, uh, the FTC alleges they had a code name for this to get more people to sign up. They called it Project Iliad after the uh, mm -hmm. that book we all read back in high school about the uh, Trojan War. So it's it, this is we. We have no response yet from Amazon, by the way. It's been several hours since this was released, so nothing yet from uh, their pushback on these allegations, but it is just the first shoe to drop. I will note the FTC is also doing a huge antitrust uh, investigation at Amazon broadly, and we're expecting that lawsuit as soon as this summer. That's going to be the big one, but this one is just specifically about Prime and what the FTC alleges are deceptive practices to get people to sign up. Millions of people, by the way, they allege. Sure, although Again, investors kind of shrugging off the ramifications of that probe. What about this Google Microsoft issue, which is also involving the FTC? Yeah, that's that's right. So this is a uh, complaint that the, Google has filed with the FTC, and it's very similar to one that they filed in Europe, basically saying Microsoft has all these enterprise customers through their Office apps, and they've been leveraging that to get sweetheart deals to sign people up for Azure Cloud. Uh, they actually, Microsoft actually had changed uh, voluntarily after their, the similar complaint they. EU, they changed their pricing a bit to kind of respond to that complaint. But very similar thing happening here. Of course, uh, Google is a distant third in market share when it comes to these cloud providers. Amazon, of course, is number one. Microsoft right there in the middle. 
you know, some of the commentary coming out right now, you know, if you can't beat them, sue them, or if you can't beat them, complain to the regulators. And of course, the irony is not lost that all these companies are being investigated for different things uh, for antitrust. Yeah, this feels like the season. And yet, even though the shares are all down today, unclear if it's this issue or simply just the fact that they got way overstretched, way over their skis. Probably more, more of the latter, just because every time one of these actions comes out, you know, investors barely shrug. They don't believe anything's really Yeah, it takes a while for it it all to pile up. It takes better part of a decade in some cases. Indeed, to something more meaningful. Steve, thanks. Thank you. Steve Kovac. Up next, Bank of America noting a divergence between institutional and retail investors last week. Who's buying? Who's selling? And ways you could add protection to your portfolio? That's ahead. Also, take a look at Bitcoin. It cracked briefly the 30,000 mark just moments ago. Highest level since early May. Best month since March as we continue to see a raft of applications for spot Bitcoin ETFs. And throughout June, CNBC is celebrating Pride Month by sharing stories of corporate leaders. Here is Poshmark CMO Stephen Tristan Young. For me, as an LGBTQIA who recently went through a surrogacy process, um, I'm very thankful that me and my partner now have two twins. Um, I was shocked at the number of people who felt uncomfortable asking me questions about the process. And for me, I welcome the opportunity to share with them about the struggles, um, the costs, uh, the emotional journey that we went through as partners and how we got there. Being able to answer those questions really felt like I was creating a bridge for people to feel comfortable to understand more about the struggles that we go through. Welcome back. The so-called smart money still believes in stock picking and the bull market, according to new flow data from Bank of America. Hedge funds and institutional investors putting $4.5 billion into single stocks and equity ETFs last week, the largest inflow since October. Different story for the retail investor, though. Back to selling after a week of buying, and they've been sellers most weeks since April, B of A reports. Joining me now is Jared Woodard, investment and ETF strategist at Bank of America Securities. Jared, it's great to have you here. You've got your finger on the flows, and you're also a little cautious on stocks here. That's right. I'm glad to be with you because this is one of those years in which active uh, asset allocation, I think, is more important than ever. Investors are, are really bullish on big parts of the market, but our contention is that this is a year of slowing economic growth, of, uh, of a gradually weakening economy, and that means we expect some parts of the bond market, especially the credit-sensitive sectors, to outperform equities. We think there's some great ways you can invest without taking on excess risk, without buying things that are already you know, too expensive. Uh, and, and if you do that, you can uh, achieve better returns than investors have had for a long time. Because in a world of structurally higher inflation uh, and interest rates, the old asset allocation playbooks don't work. You saw this last year. Stocks down, but long-term treasury bonds were down too, down 30%. Uh, a conventional 60-40 portfolio served investors really poorly, and that's why we think it's so important to look at alternatives in the bond market. I'm surprised when you're looking at bond market alternatives that you're thinking about or, or primarily doing so through ETS, which are generally seen as a, a risky way to play bonds because they mark to market uh, you know, losses immediately. I understand the point, but in some ways I would look at ETFs in fixed income as the market. Indexes are just lists of bonds that, that you know, exist, but ETFs are actually traded. They give you a much better view of what's really possible in the market today, where the liquidity really is, and what's actually moving. We think that fixed income ETFs, while they're passively constructive, are incredibly important as a way to allocate assets actively in a market as complicated in this one. And so whether it's sectors like high-yield uh, corporate bonds, high-yield municipal bonds, convertibles, or even preferred there are ways to get yield in this market without taking on inordinate amount of risks, and I think most importantly, not taking on the risks of exposure
exposure to higher inflation and interest rates that so many investors have done in the in the years past. Yeah, you're emphasizing you know you can get preferreds at seven percent, although there's some a lot of those often are financials. There's some questions about that. Um, munis, we were talking about that yesterday. Some nice yields, but again, if I were a muni investor, I'd want to just hold it to maturity. You know, why deal with the stress of having to watch the market gyrate? You know, year in and year out. I think it's incredibly important to be diversified, whether it's in stocks or in bonds. And one reason we like fixed income ETFs so much is that they give you a diversified pool uh, of bonds. Your default rate, uh, the risk of, of, of some kind of surprise is much lower in a diversified pool of those assets. And you can have much greater control over the sort of exposure to the market that you want. Um, today we find in the case of municipals that you can earn 100 basis points, a full percentage point more than comparable maturity treasuries or, or, or even higher yielding parts of the municipal market. Whether it's in preferreds or convertibles or even emerging market debt, there are places to go today in a diversified pool of fixed income assets that we find give you a much better risk profile than the conventional bond indexes that so many investors have tracked. That's interesting. I, you know, I, I, I remain, uh, I don't have a strong enough stomach for, for it, I think. There's something about the security of, of kind of single security selection. But let's zoom out for a second and talk about, you know, what are investors looking for? Um, a lot of them right now are probably wishing they were in, you know, all the big cap stuff, all the equity stuff so far year to date. But everyone also knows you jump in at the end of the rally and you could get steamrolled. That's right. In fact, the, the big equity indexes, I would argue, are more riskier than ever. You know, if you bought the S&P 500 ETF 30 years ago, you know, it's 30 years old to this year. That was a really diversified basket of stocks, low, low correlation to each other within the index and low correlation to other assets. Today, the index is more concentrated than ever. You know, seven, eight, nine stocks comprise 30% of the index. And the members of the index are more correlated to each other than they ever have been before. That means that those conventional equity investments, uh, any index, any ETF you look at, may actually be much riskier than it ever has been before. We think that looking deeper into the market, whether it's by individual factors or sectors, is a much more prudent way to go. And the same thing's true in the bond market. Most bond indexes own 70% or more in assets that are incredibly at risk from higher, structurally higher interest rates and inflation. Right. You saw Chair Powell talking about this again today. That's why we think you have to look beyond those conventional bond indexes and asset allocation models into specific parts of the market where you can get some yield at so a prudent level of risk. A quick last question, because I do share David Einhorn's concern that the S&P has become a price maker more than a price taker. And if I were, if I said, okay, I want you know ETF uh, stock market exposure, but not in the S&P 500, are there ways uh, to do that, you know, to, to get that? Absolutely. So some areas we like within the market, small cap value, which has been a consistent outperformer over the past hundred years by a wide margin. VBR is an ETF we track that, that covers that part well. If you want high quality stocks, stocks with really high free cash flow yield, there's a, it's a cash cows product we like, the ticker symbol is COWZ. We think that for a long-term investor, metals and mining is going to be incredibly important, whether you care about decarbonization or national security and, and, and resource nationalism, doesn't matter your politics. XME, the metals and mining ETF, gives you exposure to the raw materials that are necessary for all of that. If you invest in these ways, capturing factors and themes in the market, yeah. you can avoid some of the overvalued stocks that are dominating today. You know, it's nerve-wracking breaking from the crowd, but I appreciate the strategies and the advice on how to do that. Jared, thanks for your time today. Thanks. Jared Woodard, Bank of America. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, 
The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.